This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, December 14th. I'm Mary Margaret Olihan. And I'm Virginia Allen. Americans are all feeling the cost of inflation this Christmas season. Amid the rising costs, the Biden administration is working to pass its $2 trillion social spending package before the end of the year. Today, ranking member of the Select Economy Committee, Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin, joins the show to discuss what it will take to get America's economy back on track and to get inflation under control. But before we get to Virginia's conversation with Congressman Stile, let's hit the top news stories of the day. Kentucky Governor Andy Brashear estimates the tornado that tore through his state late Friday and into Saturday took the lives of at least 70 to 80 Kentucky citizens. As of Monday, more than 60 Kentucky residents had already been confirmed dead, and more than 100 are still missing. One of the hardest-hit buildings was the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Factory in Graves County, located in southwest Kentucky. The whole factory collapsed. So far, eight people who were in the factory that night have been confirmed dead. Governor Bashir became emotional Monday as he delivered remarks on the rescue and recovery operations currently taking place in Kentucky. I know like the folks in, in western Kentucky, um, I'm not doing so well today, and I'm not sure how many of us uh, are. I was working on getting the confirmed deaths this morning and realized I was writing on the back of, uh, of notes that one of my kids took from uh, school. And here's what um, what it is. It's, it's notes on inertia. It means that an object that's in motion will stay in motion. So we're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and push through this. At least 14 people from Arkansas, Tennessee, Missouri, and Illinois have been confirmed dead as a result of the severe weather conditions. On Monday, the Supreme Court declined to decide whether Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers violated the First Amendment by barring a conservative think tank from attending press conferences. The Wisconsin-based John K. McIver Institute for Public Policy had sued Evers in 2019 after he would not invite the think tank's writers to a briefing on the state's budget. The First Amendment exists to protect the rights of the people, not the convenience of the politicians, the Institute said in its appeal to the Supreme Court. When in doubt, this court should prefer the rights of journalists to question elected officials. Evers' office claims that the think tank is not principally a news organization. California Governor Gavin Newsom says he plans to empower citizens to enforce a ban on the sale and manufacturing of assault weapons in his state. Newsom made the announcement in correlation with his statement denouncing the Supreme Court's decision to let the Texas heartbeat bill remain in effect as litigation moves forward. The Texas heartbeat bill prohibits abortions after a baby's heartbeat can be detected and gives citizens the right to sue abortion providers for violating the law. Newsom said in a statement over the weekend that he now wants to give Californians that same right to take legal action against anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells an assault weapon or ghost gun kit or parts in the state of California. Newsom added that if the most efficient way to keep these devastating weapons off our streets is to add the threat of private lawsuits, 
we should do just that. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin as we discuss inflation and the state of the economy. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. I am so pleased to be joined by Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin. Congressman, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me in. All right. Lots of topics to dive in today. Congrats to you. You are now the ranking member of the Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. That's such an important position to hold. There are a lot of concerns over the state of America's economy right now. Republicans and Democrats have very, very different ideas about how we should be moving forward and how should we should be fixing the issues that we're facing in our economy. Right now, President Biden is promoting what he's calling the Build Back Better plan. You recently voiced concerns about that plan. I, I want to take a minute and we're going we're gonna to insert a clip here and just listen to some of your remarks recently uh, at a hearing where you were voicing concerns over this. Uh, and so what I'm hearing today is in Build Back Better, if you're low income, you get a lot of stuff for free. If you're rich, you get a salt tax cut. And if you're working and in the middle class, you get the bill. And so that's my concern is the impact that this is going to have on working middle class people. But if you would, um, just explain what exactly is in this bill, Congressman. Well, what I think what we need to do, we do need to recognize that there are challenges for many people in mm-hmm. the United States. And then what I think is so important is that conservatives have answers to address these challenges. Democrats think they have answers, but often their policies will simply exacerbate the problem. And so there is a gap between the rich and the poor. Absolutely. My focus is how do we bring the poor up? How do we give opportunity for those who are facing challenges? The Democratic proposal is how do they bring the top down? That doesn't help anybody on the bottom. What we need to do is focus on creating wealth in particular for lower income workers. When you look at this bill, it exacerbates the problem. So if you break down just the child care section, I think it's worthwhile to dig into it. Childcare, huge problem, Mm -hmm. incredibly expensive, Mm -hmm. very difficult for many working families. The Democratic proposal, though, is a heavy-handed Washington, D.C. approach. They put significant regulations on, including requiring thousands and thousands of childcare workers to have a college degree. It mandates wages, which will dramatically increase the cost of childcare. Many estimates are about by $13,000 a year moving child care costs to roughly $29,000 a year if the Build Back Better plan was implemented. Some people will get that for free, right? But the average working American family will find themselves with higher child care costs, subsidizing lower income workers, all the while the wealthy receive a SALT tax decrease. So it's tax cuts for the wealthy. Hmm. It is free stuff for low income workers. In the middle class, the average American worker is going to get the bill. Wow. And in total, how much are we looking at here? What what does this actually cost the American people? Well, I think there's two ways to look at the Build Back Better proposal. One is the kind of that top line number. The other is what programs are in there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of fuzzy math that the Democrats have done under the guidance of CBO and how we do our scoring. And so the United States government does accounting like no one else. 
And so they'll just do a cash flow over 10 years. And the way that I describe this to people is if you had a son or daughter that was going to go to college, and that college has, say, a tuition of $30,000 and living expenses of $20,000, so it'd be about $50,000 a year. If you were budgeting, how much is it going to cost for my son or daughter to graduate from this school? And you said, well, I only, I'm going to make it cost $50,000. They'll graduate in one year. Everybody knows that's completely absurd. But on paper, you could claim that college will cost $50,000 a year for your son or daughter. We all know logic would tell you it's probably four years, maybe five. Yeah. So it'd be reasonable to say it's going to cost $200,000 or $250,000. Mm-hmm. So the top line number that the Democrats are proposing is way below the actual cost because we know once these programs get implemented, they become incredibly difficult to remove. Mm. And so the key here is, one, to drive the top-line number down. Yes, Mm. that's important. But also is to look at every single one of the programs the Democrats are putting forward because each of them, once implemented, will be very difficult to remove going forward. It'll have just catastrophic consequences for the American way of life and for the fiscal structure of our nation. Okay. So where do things stand right now? I know we saw in November the House voted to push this forward. Now we're looking at the Senate. There's a lot of controversy there, especially with Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. We're, we're hearing from Pelosi. She's saying, I, I want to have this pushed through before Christmas. You know, that top line number is about $2 trillion right now is, is what they're saying from Democrats what does the next couple of weeks hold as as we lead up to Christmas? Really, all the pressure is going to be on the United States Senate. So the bill now is sitting on the Senate side. They're going through a parliamentary process to determine what is actually allowed under Senate rules mm-hmm. uh, to be qualified for a reconciliation bill. But what I think is so critical here is we examine each one of these programs. Mm. The vast majority of Americans don't know what's in this bill. And I think what's really important for us as members of the House, the bill is already out of the House, but we can still be a voice to explain to the American people what's in this bill, why it's bad, and actually then put forward conservative proposals to move our country forward as a true alternative to the socialist policies that the Democrats are pushing. But all the focus is going to be on the Senate and will they actually get 50 votes for any of these proposals. And again, the top line numbers that they're advertising are woefully below what would be the real world cost if these programs become implemented. So when you talk about the programs that that are in this bill, what what needs to right away say, oh, yeah, we got to scrap that. And then is there anything in this plan, in this massive, massive social spending bill that you say, well, actually, that might be good. Maybe, Maybe we should be investing there. I think right now we we shouldn't be spending more money. We're seeing inflationary numbers uh, that we haven't seen in about 40 years, and they're behavior changing for so many people. Mm -hmm. We need to really hit the brakes on new government spending. Our spending is already out of control. New government spending is only going to exacerbate it and make it worse. And so what I'd like to see us do is completely kill this bill. I mean, that is our absolute best approach. And informing the American people what's in it is a real step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned inflation, and that is something that's on all Americans' minds. What are the steps forward to get inflation under control in America? Because right now it just feels like every time you look at the numbers, it's going up and up and up. It it, it continues to to increase. Uh, And as costs go up, families get pinched. And inflation Mm -hmm. impacts and higher costs impacts different families in different ways. And low-income workers and seniors really get punched in the face by inflation, particularly if you think about it this way. If you think if you own your home and the inflationary price goes up, maybe you feel a little bit better. It doesn't really impact you in the pocketbook if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage. But if you're a renter, you don't own the underlying property. The landlord does. The value goes up for the landlord. Prices rise. 
And so the landlord raises rent. And as rent goes up, if your wages aren't keeping up, and the in, all the indications are wages are not keeping up with this inflationary rates that we're seeing, that just clobbers lower-income workers who are renting, clobbers seniors who are trying to live on fixed incomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some families are really getting hit here. Uh, and in particular, many of them are beginning to change their behaviors. How do we get it under control? It's a real multifaceted uh, thing that we have to tackle. Some of it is pandemic-related. People are changing their behavior. They're buying less services or buying more goods. That's put unique inflationary pressure on unique products. Uh, we have some supply chain issues that I think will hopefully work out over time. But what can a policymaker do? I believe for a long time we've had a mismatch between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Hmm. So on the on the fiscal policy side, we're spending way beyond our means. We've pumped into the economy trillions of dollars of new government spending many of which has not yet flowed through the system. I'll give you an example, just the state of Wisconsin is sitting on billions of dollars of COVID-related funds that have yet to be allocated and spent. So this is still wow. has billions and billions of dollars that are going to flow through the system that are going to continue to exacerbate these higher prices. Okay. At the same time, we have a monetary policy by the Federal Reserve that has pumped in uh, trillions of dollars uh, in the form of liquidity uh, in my opinion, beyond what we need, and is part of the the pressure that's driving up uh, inflation and higher costs. And we're going to be feeling this pressure for some time. Uh, it was positive to see uh, Chairman uh, Powell of the Federal Reserve uh, note that this is no longer transitory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, kind of turning the corner here that we really need to right the ship, both from a, a fiscal policy side as well as a monetary policy side. So then regarding inflation, what do you think 2022 holds? Because I, I feel like a lot of Americans are trying to kind of white knuckle it and, you know, push through and just hope, okay, you know, when are numbers going to come down? When are costs going to come down? When are gas prices going to come down? But from what you just said, it sounds like this might be a kind of a long road ahead of us. Well, economists look at it differently. And so there's a lot of different viewpoints on this. I, I just note that on the on the fiscal side, there is so much of the money that's been allocated under all of the previous spending bills that have yet to flow through the economy. So mm-hmm. if you just, if you look at each state that received funds from just the most recent COVID quote, COVID bill, air quotes uh, for listeners, right? But if you look at that $350 billion went out to state and local governments, the vast majority of that in many states has not been spent. Wow. And so that means that money's still going to come through the system in a period of time uh, where the new government spending is discouraging workers from returning to work. Many of these programs, almost none of the programs have work requirements that would get people back into the workforce. And so it's exacerbated by a labor shortage, caused by the policies being put forward by the Biden administration, uh, as well as just the quantity of money that's now in our system. So talk a little bit about the mission of the Select Economy Committee, where where you're the the ranking Republican member. And is there anything that that you all are doing on that committee to try and actively be getting getting inflation under control, really be putting our economy back on, on the right path? And so Nancy Pelosi stood this committee up, Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. I call it the Select Committee on the Economy. Only a Democrat could name it like she did. (laughs) Uh, But her focus really is on trying to assist those who are the least amongst us. It's a a virtuous goal. But the policies being put forward by the left do the exact opposite. It actually clobbers many low-income workers and traps them in a cycle of poverty. When you look at the data, what really helps people get out of poverty? It is a two-parent household and a job. And if you look at the policies being put forward by the left, they clobber both of those. Mm. If you look at under BBB, if you just go back again just to the child care proposal, there's a marriage penalty. 
you receive more money if you're single than if you do if you're married on a, on a per capita basis. It encourages people to not get married. When we know a two-parent household has positive impacts uh, for children and allows them to get out of poverty. The second is a job. And that's probably the most important piece here because I think there's such dignity in work. Yeah. And it's so rewarding. Uh, and it needs, from a cultural perspective, we need to have people working. And these programs have removed work requirements. So if you look at what would have been um, ways to get folks back to work, again, we'll just take the child care because we've been hitting the topic here. But you would think that you would maybe provide child care and then have a work requirement, since your child is receiving care, to go back to work. No. The program is simply providing child care for free, which at some point has the complete discouragement to, to getting people back to work. Yeah. I think there's a real dignity in work. We need to really drive back to this point. And there's such a cultural, um, there's such a cultural challenge the longer individuals find themselves out of work and the democratic policies are discouraging workers to get back to the workforce. Well, in Congressman Style, you spent 10 years before running for Congress working in manufacturing in Wisconsin. So how does your own experience of, you know, working in America, working in manufacturing, how is that influencing the way that you are trying to lead on the economic issue and specifically on the on the Select Economy Committee? I, I, it reminds me really just of the dignity of work. So I spent yeah. 10 years working for two different uh, large manufacturing companies, both headquartered uh, in Wisconsin, I remember going to the the second company that I worked for, a big plastics company, came in and uh, a buddy of mine that I went to high school with had been working there since he graduated high school. So I came in, I was probably in my late 30s. And you get to see how all of these jobs provide avenues for success. Hmm. And so he was running the, the health and safety division of the company uh, and had been able to really improve uh, and have a great family sustaining uh, job. And what we need to do is have policies that are allowing everyone the opportunity to have a family supporting job. And so the private sector is the driver that's capable of doing that. The government is not capable of providing you with those types of opportunities. And often the government, in fact, gets in the way. And so I saw time and again when we were trying to do expansion, trying to grow the company, trying to create jobs. Uh, you'd see the government bureaucracy at work preventing that from getting done. We need to cut a lot of those uh, rules, regulations uh, that aren't necessary to really allow the American uh, opportunity to fully manifest. So as we look towards 2022, what needs to be top priority for Congress in order to get our economy back on track? What's what's number one? What are you advocating for? I, I think we got to get the spending under control. Yeah. I, I think as we see higher prices, and we see the implications of that. It's we need to get the spending in Washington, D.C. under control because as costs rise, it's just clobbering average Americans day in and day out. The other is we got to rip the Band-Aid off COVID uh, and get back to pre-pandemic policies. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the very beginning of the pandemic, right, when the governments were forcing businesses to close, we were very concerned that people may lose their house, be unable to pay rent, pay a mortgage, cover a grocery bill. And so gov the, the government stepped in, big bipartisan bill, the CARES Act, a lot of things wrong with it, but it did prevent people from losing their homes. It did prevent people from being unable to pay their grocery bills. Now we understand how to deal with COVID. Mm -hmm. And now's the time to rip the Band-Aid off of all these policies and get back to pre-pandemic policies that were working quite well. We need to remember that going into the pandemic, we saw one of the greatest growth environments we had seen in generations. We had terrific employment rates. 
uh, across the board, but in particular, all the demographic groups that this committee's focused in on, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, women, veterans. Uh, and we can do that by having a low tax environment, encouraging the economic growth. And we saw real wages actually increasing, so wages beyond inflation. When you flip this all on its head and we watch the pandemic policies continue well beyond what was actually necessary for the government to do, we start to see the real negative consequences that this has on people. Mm -hmm. And so between getting our spending under control and ripping the Band-Aid off of COVID policies, I think need to be the top two things that we do going forward. Excellent. Thank you for breaking that down. Well, Congressman Sayle, we can't have you on the show and not talk about Kenosha, Wisconsin. That is the district that you represent, the first district of Wisconsin, which includes Kenosha. The Daily Signal has traveled to Kenosha twice, both to speak with small business owners who had their businesses destroyed during the riots following the Jacob Blake shooting. Uh, And then we were there again to cover the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Give us a little bit of, of an update on how how small businesses are doing in Kenosha. You know, are, are they coming back strong? I know that that part of the country has just been hit really, really hard. Of course, so many people experienced COVID, but then with all of the riots and the looting that went through there in the summer of 2020, really, really challenging time. Kenosha is just a great city on Lake Michigan, family-centered, hardworking community, Uh, that was scarred by three horrific nights of rioting, all of which could have been prevented uh, if sufficient resources were sent to the community of Kenosha. I think that's one thing that's really important for everybody to remember is that this all could have been prevented if we had provided the resources the city of Kenosha needed. Our Democratic governor, Tony Evers, refused to do that. Tuesday morning before the whole Kyle Rittenhouse incident played out, which was uh, what would be on the third night, Uh, I was on the phone with the president of the United States requesting resources for Kenosha. Mm -hmm. Uh, He offered to call the governor of our state. He did. He made the offer to provide federal assistance. And our governor rejected Mm -hmm. that offer of assistance. And then Tuesday night is when the Kyle Rittenhouse incident played out. Again, an incident that never had to occur in the first place if sufficient resources were there. But the scars of those three nights of rioting are, are still seen. By and large, the city has come completely back. Uh, but when I was walking in the 4th of July parade through the streets of Kenosha, as you get into the downtown area, there's still a building with boards up. Uh, and somebody had spray painted on the building, don't, don't burn this building. I live here with an arrow pointing up, mm. which was a reminder that the criminals who were burning buildings and doing other destruction – were destroying not only the businesses, but apartments where people lived above them. They put all sorts of people's lives uh, at risk, as well as the livelihood of individuals. People were seriously injured. People were killed. Uh, It was horrific uh, what played out. And those scars will run deep. uh, But Kenosha, by and large, is a resilient community, uh, and it has overwhelmingly come back. Uh, And if you look at the big picture, uh, one of the things that really it's benefited by is being north of Chicago and Illinois, yeah. uh, and is every rational person gets out of the state <laughs> of Illinois uh, and out of Chicago, many of them find themselves in Kenosha, in Kenosha County, because it really is just a spectacular city 
uh, in a beautiful city on the lake. Yeah, I have loved visiting Kenosha. It's so beautiful, so quaint. The people are wonderful there, so, so kind. It's a special, special place for sure. Well, and I, I think what we're seeing across America with small businesses, of course, you know, so many are coming back after the pandemic. Businesses are recovering after riots. But then you look to states like California, where we're seeing this sort of like smash and grab crime and you know, businesses are just being overrun by by criminals, really, by opportunists. How how do we need to be supporting small businesses right now? I mean, small businesses are are the backbone of America. How can we be actively encouraging Americans to pursue those dreams of of starting their small businesses when they are looking at states like California and thinking, gosh, you know, I, I don't know if I can safely pursue this dream. We need to hold elected leaders accountable. And in many of these big cities, uh, they have been electing far liberal um, leaders of their cities. And the consequences are catastrophic. Everybody deserves to have a safe neighborhood. Everybody deserves to have a safe community. And when that's not provided, the effects are wide ranging. Uh, not only is it unsafe uh, for maybe a mother to, to have her children walk to school, uh, the same is said for a business that wants to invest uh, in one of these communities. And it's a refusal by the far left uh, to stand with the men and women of law enforcement, to stand with public safety. And the consequences are truly catastrophic. And you see many of these cities uh, that have just been completely gutted uh, as people are concerned and nervous uh, to go Christmas shopping, to be out to dinner. Uh, late at night. And it's just wildly um, unfair to so many individuals who don't hold that view, but it's incumbent upon them to really stand up uh, and elect leaders that are willing to stand uh, with law enforcement and public safety. Yeah, so, so critical. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you being here. A Merry Christmas to you. uh, And thank you for, for the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me in. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.